welcome to Talking Shop, Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast series exploring the latest global trends for consumer sector companies. My name is Eva Zureb, a partner and commercial litigator specializing in defending class actions and product liability litigation. Talking Shop with us today, we have Cameron Whitfield and Philip Magnus to discuss cybersecurity. Welcome to you both. Hello, hello, thank you. Cam is a partner market leader specializing in cybersecurity, digital law, and emerging technologies. And Philip is a technology lawyer with more than 15 years experience covering a unique combination of legal, cyber, regulatory, and investigative expertise. Today, we are talking shop about cybersecurity and the risks and protections every board and management team of a consumer sector company needs to know, including throughout the supply chain, and in relation to employee and customer data. So Cam, Philip, let's start with your latest observations. What are some of those predominant cyber threats that you're seeing at the moment? Uh, thanks, Eve. I think as, as far as I'm seeing, there are there are three main ones. The first one is, is clearly ransomware and data extortion. You know, this remains a big issue for us. It's increasing weekly. And in, in all the reporting we've seen, whether it be from the Information Commissioner or the Australian Cyber Security Centre, it's, it's at least 30% of all cybercrime that's been reported. Um, in fact, the Australian Cyber Security Centre itself says it's it's underreported. Um, we've had high profile breaches. We've had those showing significant effects. But what is less reported, I think, is the impact on smaller to medium sized businesses where ransomware itself can be quite catastrophic. You know, some of the trends we're seeing in ransomware include affiliate models where various parties assume different roles in this uh, ransomware supply chain. You may have one party, for example, that creates the malicious software, a different party carries out the attack, and then the, the, the two of them share the profits. Uh, there's an increased professionalism with, with these groups, and you know, you may even have arbitral a, a processes to resolve the, the disputes between the threat actors themselves. The other couple of other areas. Um, I think business email compromise is still around. Um, I think anecdotally, certainly from my perspective here in Australia, we're seeing a bit of a reduction in that. And I think that's mainly because, you know, most of our corporates have, um, have upped their security. They've mm. put in multi-factor authentication and, and a few other security mechanisms. Um, but I think there's a little bit of a false sense of security at times, having multi-factor authentication. Um, if they don't configure some of their policies that sit behind that correctly. And, and what that does in, and what we're seeing is that that's putting companies in a bit of a dangerous um, or a false sense of security position because they think they're safe because they have this security feature, but they don't check their logs. They don't look at the alerts and suddenly they find themselves victims, um, as, as we've certainly seen. And, and I guess finally, from my perspective, um, I think nation state actors remain a real threat. I, I think it's a very, a very different and quite concerning model, the nation state model. Um, you know, when these when these threat actors gain access to a network, they're very quiet, they're very hard to detect. And in fact, the first time you'll probably know they're even there is when the government calls you and tells you you've got a bit of an issue. You know, they'll hide their tracks, they'll use software never before seen. And, and the biggest danger is that they target, you know, your most valuable IP. You know, they aren't as focused on gaining access to personal information as they are on taking the crown jewels, you know, the absolute yeah. crown jewels of the company. Those are my observations, I think, of what I see as the three big threats. Yeah, I, I, I reiterate that. I mean, um, it's hard to shy away from um, the major and most destructive of these threats, which is really these criminal outfits that are trying to extort 
corporate Australia. Um, and yes, corporate Australia is the victim, but we're starting to see the rhetoric change around that because, of course, uh, particularly in consumer-facing businesses, the, the victim is often the individual, uh, the actual customer at the end of the supply chain. And so those major attacks that are impacting corporates, particularly corporates holding large swathes of personal, personal information, they're really attacks on the individuals. And uh, the back end of last year, last six months of last year, there were five different breaches where more than a million Australians were impacted. And we know of a couple, don't we? Um, they were very high profile, but we probably didn't know of five. So um, it's out there, it's prevalent. I think we are in a little bit of an information vacuum in some respects, given the nature of the reporting and the veracity of the reporting. I think it's important to know that um, we're doing a lot of this assessment based on our lived experience and not I'm not necessarily able to leverage um, accurate data. Um, a good example might be around um, companies that pay ransom amounts, and some are banding around figures that in the order of sort of 80% are paying, but in our experience, it's a lot lower. In fact, we think much it's less. much more likely uh, to be around the 40% paying, and if you're dealing with a data-only extraction event, we're, dealing, we're talking very low numbers indeed. And so there lies the conundrum. The crime is being carried out, the reporting is not consistent, the data is not consistent, and yet we have to ask ourselves where to find the solutions to this problem, given that uh, given that uncertainty and complexity. Fascinating stuff, and, and, and dealing with these really significant threats, what does the incident response look like? What's the role of lawyers in that incident response, and are you saying that changing over time? Oh yeah, it's changing. It's changing every day, really, in many respects. But if you if you'd asked me this question sort of four or five years ago, I would say that the role would be much more of a um, advisory role, uh, one where we would be called upon um, to advise in relation to discrete matters associated with the breach. But uh, that has uh, changed almost entirely. And in fact, the role that we play or the role we often play, is of crisis manager. And the reason we play that role is because many of the key decisions and many of the uh, fundamental issues that arise in the first 24 hours have legal components to them, um, whether it's standing up an engagement team, uh, putting in place legal professional privilege protocols around legal advice and artefacts, whether it's deciding how best to uh, rebuild or contain a threat and retain or keep evidence as you go through that process. Um, all of these attacks invariably have large regu regulator or regulatory landscapes you have to manage, and quite often uh, a lot of different government agencies as well. Um, some companies are insured, of course, cyber insurance, and we have to navigate through that. There's communication protocols proactive, reactive media, um, internal, external. Um, and then you have to make a decision quite early in the piece to do something which many are not trained to do, and that is potentially engage and negotiate with a, a criminal threat actor. And so all of those things are sort of new risks, really, um, and risks that we haven't really been trained to deal with, but in fact are the sort of things that Phil and I do almost on a daily basis now. And so 
and each one of those, like I said, has got a legal lens. And so we find ourselves in, in the middle of that discussion. And perhaps at times, um, I think we also become um, really conduits between, say, the legal teams, the IT teams, forensics and the board. And really, um, in terms of the crisis response, I think our role is at times sometimes to to distill this volume of information that's being provided from the various areas really put a calmness across i think as well one of the keys in this in these issues is that they are times of extreme stress for a company most companies have never been through this all the the testing and the simulation exercises and the role playing that you can do in advance is is of course highly valuable but it doesn't really simulate what a really stressful event would be like mm. so i think one of the roles of the lawyers in the room is to hopefully have a pretty good understanding of your client um, in advance. Obviously, we try to do that, but really just to be that calm presence in the room and, and to just make sure that the group is really focusing on what the key issues are and the priorities that have to be resolved now. Because, of course, every area will have their own um, things that they value as being of most importance, whether it be um, you know, trying to claim on cyber insurance or engage a regulator or uh, recover certain systems in a certain order. And I think our role sometimes is just to is to take that on board and and coordinate it and just make sure the response is on track. Yeah, it's a great point, Phil. I mean, that that calmness in the room. I have to say, when I look back on the incidents that we're involved with, I think that can be one of the most uh, uh, significant parts of our contribution, to be honest. And sometimes that information or that calmness comes from experience and but it also comes from being able to inform those about what is about to occur and sometimes what is about to occur is not good um, and uh, you're the bringer of bad news in some respects but becoming more informed in and of itself can help calm and slow a, uh, a slower crisis uh, and Phil made the point about um, being that conduit between different participants in that sort of crisis response room or team, uh, we are often in that place where we are almost translators. We're helping yeah. um, quite technical yeah. information be translated through to sort of management speak and vice versa. Yeah. And I think that's a critical role too. Um, regrettably, we sometimes uh, we speak different languages around some of this stuff. So, And just to pick up on that, Cam, you've mentioned two things which I'm keen to understand a little bit more about the first is around this concept of a threat actor yeah brand insurance but maybe first just on the threat actor can you just talk us through a little bit you know what are we talking about when we use that term and why would an organization engage with a threat actor yeah it can yeah. mean it can mean many things i guess because you're dealing with different types of threats um but if maybe phil if we can touch on just um dealing with sort of the criminal threat. I mean, we do have uh, someone who has gotten into your environment. They've invariably sought to encrypt your systems and uh, more often than not stolen a swathe of data as well. So they're looking to do something called a double extortion, which is basically use those two points of leverage to extort amounts from you. And many organisations are in a position where they can avoid the encryption consequences because they have good backups and the like, and then get stuck dealing with a um, with a data risk issue. But either way, there are a number of reasons why you may need to engage that threat actor, and you may need to engage for the reason of paying, of course. 
Um, but you may also need to pay to verify the, uh, the veracity of the claim, that they've taken the data that they claim they've taken, that they have the decryption key or the capability to decrypt the systems. And so to go into um, an attack of this nature and not have an open mind as to whether or not you're willing to engage with a threat actor might well put you in a worse place than you would otherwise be. And that's, I say that, acknowledging that it's an uncomfortable place to put someone to say that we think it's in your interests, the company's interests at this point in time to engage with this threat actor. So there are many reasons. Uh, Phil, I'm not sure if you've got anything more you'd like to add. Yeah, I think it is interesting, Cam, because I think, um, you know, ransomware and the data extortion model is probably one of the only times I can think in my history of investigating matters where we've actually engaged with a criminal directly. Now, if you think of um, someone hacking an account, you think of a nation state threat actor, you think of someone gaining access to email, you know, you have no idea who's at the other end. You've, um, they come, they go, they take what they get and they're out. Here we have a model where we're actually <laughs> engaging in, in, in various types of comms intentionally with, a, with an organised criminal group. So in terms of the actual means as to how you may engage, um, look, it can be as simple as um, clicking on a link in a ransom note and, and going through to the threat actors you know, online leak site or their dark website. Um, obviously, once you do that, they'll know you've, you're there and you, you've actually begun the engagement process at that time. Um, but there's different models and, and you know, I've, I've been involved in matters where the threat actor has gained access to a system, has encrypted that system, has left a small part of the system unencrypted and gone and uh, installed a chat application like Jabber or something similar, mm -hmm. uh, all pre-configured. So you just have to click the button and automatically you've got chat engagement, which is, you know, kind of handy if you want, but it's, uh, it's all pre-configured for you. But other instances, you know, it'll be by means of phone calls. So the threat actor will reach out to a director, perhaps, or perhaps someone from IT, uh, and they'll suddenly receive a phone call at all sort of hours of the night saying, we are from, you know, Black Cat or whatever other ransomware group, um, and, and these are our demands. You know, as to how they gain access to phone numbers, well, think about it. They've, they've got access to your system. They've got access to email signature blocks. Um, it may be posted online and so forth. And other times, um, you know, if they don't pick up the phone and, and, and send a phone call, then, then they'll engage with you through instant messaging and, you know, they'll use Signal or WhatsApp and some sort of made-up account to, to contact you. So there is a, a variety of ways in which, oddly enough, through your personal device, your business device, you're actually communicating with a criminal threat actor, trying to negotiate, trying to understand more, as Cam said earlier, about what they may have, what they may have taken, seeking proof, trying to you know, limit any damage, trying to, to get an understanding of what they will or won't do. Um, you know, it, it's, it's very different and it's probably something that most uh, directors, executives, staff um, have, have, would never have anticipated when they, uh, you yeah. know, in fact, five years ago or more, I don't think you would have anticipated that would be a role or something they may have to come across once in their yeah. careers. I mean, lots of risks, lots of discussion about risks, how that risk can manifest itself in, in many different ways. Let's talk about mitigation and in particular ensuring cyber risk. So what do our listeners need to know if they are considering a, a cyber insurance policy? Um, well, first of all, the first thing they should know is that it's not the answer yeah. uh, to the problem. Um, it's one of many components that are there to sort of mitigate and 
um, and by and large, it's dealing with um, the incident once it's occurred. Uh, many insurance policies actually make it very difficult to get these insurance policies because you have to have a particular security footing. Uh, so in some respects, the industry does drive cyber resilience uplift, but either way, the policy is in place for when there's a breach. And so it's ambulance at the bottom of the cliff stuff, really, um, dealing with the costs of the, um, or the impact of an incident. It, it is a challenging industry in many respects at the moment. It is still relatively nascent here in Australia, maturing, I'd say it's in that maturing phase. We're probably seeing right now a bit of a leveling off around sort of premiums in this space. But if um, you look back six months, maybe 12 months ago, you would have seen premiums racing, uh, increasing significantly. A lot of that has to do with insurers getting a handle on the nature and extent of the risk, but also, quite frankly, chasing losses that occurred very early in the insurance life cycle for these types of insurance packages. So um, a ch the changing nature, um, many companies are choosing not to take up insurance, actually um, self-insuring. And so um, insurance policies certainly only apply to a, a small minority of the market. There are a couple of things you need to be aware of, of course, when you actually got a policy in place, and it's not just um, the exclusions and the premiums and the uh, retention amounts and all of that sort of stuff. But you have to be also uh, cognizant of a an insurer operating in a at a time and in a space where you may have divergent views as to what's appropriate. You may have divergent views even on who you'd like to have involved to help you. Um, and so we have to go into these insurance processes with an open mind and our clients have to go in with open eyes around that type of stuff. There may well be conflicts of interest that arise during that, uh, the life cycle of the insurance policy. And certainly with the advisors and we have insurers that often make available triage services that are available for, for clients, even make available law firms, um, not your standard law firm necessarily, a new law firm that you've not dealt with, uh, um, help you through um, those incidents. And we find more and more of our clients raise concerns about that. They want to make sure that their trusted advisors are with them, both before, during, and after an event, and including in relation to potential claims made under that insurance. And so the dynamic of the insurer, the insurer's panel of counsel or advisors, and what I call the trusted advisor role, that's changing significantly at the moment, and we're seeing ourselves put into place of that trusted advisor. We don't operate on insurance panels. That's not what we do. We like to remain independent, and we fiercely protect that independence for and on behalf of our clients. And consumer sector companies often navigate you know, really complex supply chains. Obviously, these issues apply across every sector, but just focusing on consumer sector for the moment, what, what risks arise from third parties and how can those consumer sector companies protect themselves and, and what steps can they take to, to protect themselves? Well, that's a great question. And I think the, probably the biggest risk for most corporates is the fact that the supply chain is a, is a pretty big blind spot for them. You know, I think there have been some surveys indicating that, you know, a quarter of companies have little to no understanding of their supply chain risks. In fact, 
I think that's, you know, many surveys have said about 60 to 70% of companies have actually taken no action on, on third party supplier risk management. Um, and of course, as the um, complexity of the environment increases, um, the supply chain ecosystem becomes even more difficult for these companies to navigate. Um, I think one of the questions is, is perhaps why is it that that we're hearing of so many attacks against the supply chain? What's changed? And I don't think anything has changed, but I think what has happened is we have these criminally motivated groups and these groups are always looking for a payday. They're looking for money and there is money in data. And so many of our suppliers and partners have increasingly been entrusted with more and more of our company's data and not just our company's data, but at times our company's most sensitive data. And so from a threat actor's perspective, this makes the supplier a very attractive target because they get a maximum benefit um, from very little effort um, by infecting sort of one supplier. They then gain access to a multitude of organisations' data at the same time. They don't have to do 10,000 attacks. They can do one successful attack and gain access. And I think, you know, for me, I think the SolarWinds attack was, um, for those who are familiar with it on the call, is, is a great example of this. You know, in this attack, the... The threat actors put malicious software into um, the SolarWinds network management software used by companies all around the world. And when the, com when the customers did what they should do, and that is update and patch their systems in accordance with good security, there was a bug in the system and that allowed the attackers access to their, their networks. This is the company's networks. One attack, the threat actors got access to 18,000 companies at once, which is which is quite significant. I, th I think the other thing with the supply chain is that operationally, the issue with the threat of ransomware is is of real significance for our customers, you know, for the corporate environment. And this is because, you know, ransomware can cripple a medium to small business to a point that they can't recover. I think the, on average, 70% of small and medium sized businesses who suffer a serious cyber attack go out of business within six months. And, and so they either have a choice that they pay and they try to get out of it if they can, or they go under, and of course, our reliance and our customers' reliance on these on these companies means that there's an element of the supply chain that's suddenly gone, and they have to find it somewhere else. And I think what, from my perspective, what we find is perhaps the greatest frustration for a corporate at times is that even though there may be a supply chain attack that has absolutely nothing to do with them, it's completely separate, doesn't even involve their systems. They become a victim because either they no longer have a supplier to provide a critical part or piece of software, or in fact their data is stolen, and the supplier's breach then becomes their breach. And and so we have this difficulty of our our corporates being involved in a multi-party breach, not of their doing. Yeah. Well, on that, I think I think it's important to note that um, there are things you do can do, of course to strengthen your supply chain and it's not just about making sure you negotiate great terms of contract um, it can be very practical things about how you onboard certain uh, providers if you like um, how you implement security checks during the life of that type of uh, contractual arrangement i think it's naive to sit back and think that we can somehow zero risk this whether it's on um, with ourselves or with our supply network, and uh, and we live in a and operate in a world where we do have comp very very complex supply chains, so we have to do our best to get transparency and visibility around the security settings. And that's when I say security settings, I'm talking about people, process, and technology. And it's incumbent on us if we are uh, um, recipients of supply that we've made that due inquiry, 
and doing those checks. And without that, I think we're putting ourselves at risk of further uh, impact from the supply chain. Well, thank you, Cam and Philip, for talking shop with us today. Some really valuable insights on what is a very complex topic. So thank you. You are welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely speaking with you. And we look forward to sharing more consumer sector insights over the coming months. Before we close, as is our tradition on these um, podcasts, an interesting fact relating to the consumer sector. The sector is often a pioneer in emerging tech by innovating products and processes to meet new markets and consumers. As we'll discuss in our upcoming episodes on the use of AI and non-fungible tokens. Today, we're traveling back to 1994 when Pizza Hut became one of the pioneers of online shopping. They started selling pizzas through their early PizzaNet portal. It was a pre-public internet system that relied on, relied on a closed network of computers and is described as an ancient looking flat gray website. This early food service was originally conceived as a social service for the elderly and other disadvantaged groups. In the same year, Amazon launched closely followed by eBay in 1995 and other e-commerce sites around the world, setting the stage for the online shopping revolution. As ever, thank you for listening. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.